This is Abby, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story for each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Newsham, a planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City, and today I'm joined by my friend Chuck Marone, author and founder of the Strong Towns organization. Hello. Hey, Abby. So nice to see hey. you. <laughs> And you're, we haven't talked since uh, your team won the Super Bowl, so yeah. congratulations. Nice yeah. job. Yeah, I did call it. I was kind of thinking about it during the game that I would be eating my words because um, I was pretty confident that we would It win. wasn't exactly a bold call for someone who literally lives in the city. How could you not pick your team to win? It would be like you know, if you picked a different team from a different place, that would be bold. But like being a homer, no one's going to make you eat your words if you like didn't work out. But it yeah, was cool. Yeah, that's true. Especially me, because I really don't have a lot of uh, context for making that call. I just yeah. am making it. You just, well, you do. You're a Kansas City fan. You also picked the Royals, which, you know, is a, is a homer play that hasn't worked out well. Yeah, I know. Did you get Sad. to watch the whole game, though? I mean, did you get to see it? Yeah, I did watch the whole game. Yeah, my family would be very proud of me. Yeah, as someone who is not like deeply vested in the outcome, it was an entertaining football game. I mean, it was a really Insane. good. It's a really good game, which I've seen some stinker Super Bowls, and you know, it seems like we've had a, a string of good ones. This was definitely a fun one. So yeah, yeah, very cool. Definitely entertaining, which is good. So yeah. Well, and uh, for the whole, you know, for the whole like world swirling around Taylor Swift, I will say my daughter, um, the 16 year old girl who went to see Taylor Swift in concert and, you know, talked about it for probably six months after that continuously. Uh, she wanted to watch a football game with dad. So Aww. my parents came over and we sat and watched a football game. And I think they said there was like 46 seconds total of Taylor Swift shown during the game, uh, something like that. But my daughter saw all 46 and that was what she talked about. <laughs> and so, you know, whatever, There's, whatever, yeah. whatever gets her to sit on the couch with me and talk. No, that's beautiful. That is, yeah, yeah, it's definitely (laughs) worthwhile. And, and yeah, that's beautiful. Good. Yeah. Well, we can thank Taylor Swift for that. I'm grateful. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So we've got kind of a fun article today and I'm so curious to hear your thoughts. We haven't talked about it at all since we picked it. Um, So this is an article that's published in Vox by Rachel Cohen entitled, What If Public Housing Were for Everyone? So this is covering the community of Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., and they have been exploring a new approach for tackling the housing crisis. Leaders have established a model by which government essentially creates their own housing One way they do that, and it's different than the conventional public housing approach, and we can talk about that, but one way that they do that is through public-private partnership models with the goal of creating mixed-income social housing. And 
they essentially are lending money. The government is able to offer private development companies favorable financing terms through basically a revolving loan fund, which is much more competitive in our high interest environment. The first project has officially been completed with 268 units that is apparently leased at 97% occupancy. And currently in the works are two other complexes. One is 463 units and the other is 415 units. Private developers in the region have been enticed to work with the county due to the high interest rates and their affordable financing options. And increasingly, leaders from other cities have developed an interest in creating similar programs. Montgomery County recently hosted a project tour and convening of public officials who were interested in learning more about this model. So they hosted leaders from all over the country, including New York City, Boston, Atlanta, and Chicago. So... I know this is something that has been tossed around in my city of Kansas City. People have been talking about this for a couple of years. I don't know if it is because it came from this particular place in the country or not, but having the idea of a revolving loan fund or leveraging government assets to produce housing is something that I've definitely heard floating around in my space. Chuck, as somebody who just wrote a book on housing and has been thinking about housing a whole lot for several years now, is this something that you think is part of the solution for tackling the public housing or the housing crisis? Definitely. I feel like there's a lot here to like and admire. I feel like there's a lot here to dig into. I want to split the way government supports housing into three buckets. The first bucket would be all just the general subsidies we do for certain types of development. Basically, the subsidies that we do for single-family homes and the subsidies that we do for big multi-unit apartment buildings. We have constructed a whole national system that subsidizes both of those things. If you live in a single-family home today, that single-family home almost certainly exists because of a direct or an indirect subsidy from the federal government, whether it is the building of infrastructure to like the assumption of, uh, of loans on a secondary market and the fact that you know we, we, we print lots of money, we, we support banks who do this type of work. It, it, there's a whole like superstructure of subsidy that goes into just middle-class single-family housing and then these large, like you see today, the five-over-one type of... Uh, of construction, the big apartment buildings that are market rate. The the second bucket I'm going to just call completely subsidized, where the government loses tons of money providing housing for people. This can be housing for the homeless. It can also be like Section 8 vouchers and things like this. It's basically like we're going to spend money supporting people who struggle to get housing. And these programs are like, uh, in some ways, I'm not going to say popular, but like have some support in advocacy circles. Uh, They're also kind of broadly criticized for not really doing enough while doing just enough to kind of mess up some of the market forces that might actually provide housing. It, it, It doesn't really provide great housing and it does it in a way that doesn't really help a ton of people. Now, people will argue with that, but what have you, that that's the second bucket. To me, this is the third bucket and this is the most fascinating one. It's the kind of housing where, and I'm going to say it in a way that might feel crass to people, it's the kind of housing where the government doesn't lose money providing it. 
In other words, you're still like going out and building housing and you're leasing it out to people, but you're doing it at rates that actually cover your costs or for the most part, like break even. When the government does housing, it can do some things that the private sector struggles to do. First of all, it can borrow at lower rates. Second of all, it can leverage like land that it has sitting around uh, that went tax forfeit or what have you. It's got, the government has lots of, local governments have lots of assets just sitting around that can be leveraged for housing. The third is, is they can be really patient capital. They can have an investment window that pays back in 20, 25, 30 years. They don't have to like turn a profit right away and, and cash flow this thing right away. The problem is that government can also be kind of lazy with the way that they balance their books and manage their money. And so if you have the wrong mindset, you can lose a lot of money really quickly doing this and wreck your program. But if you're disciplined and prudent about it, you can actually provide a lot of housing to a lot of people at a price point that works, that you know, we would call quote unquote affordable or more affordable, and you could do it in a fiscally responsive manner meaning you can do it sustainably over time, over and over and over again. I think that there's a huge amount of promise here, but let's be clear what it is. It's the promise that comes from competent local government, not from big hearts and wishful thinking and let's just throw money at a problem. And, and to me, that's exciting because I want local government to be a lot more competent. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I. I had a, I had to read this a couple of times to really get at what the article was trying to explain. And I think that's because the, the way it was explained and just the title of this article. It's horrible. Of, it's just dumb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it threw me off and it, it took, took a moment to really understand what, what we're talking about here. And I think the term social housing, just the whole way that this was framed, I'll be a little bit critical because I think it makes people have a gut reaction because they feel like what is being explained here is antithetical to the American housing framework and it's people just get triggered and, you know, it's so I was a little bit frustrated about that because I actually think that this is a smart model because it leverages all of the things that government it can be good at if they're competent. And like you said, there's the, the lowest cost of financing is a big one, especially in this environment where private developers are looking for alternatives. Government also has all this land. They have the ability to provide tax abatements. So there's all of these different incentives that can come into play in a really intentional way. And what I think is smart about this is that they're not necessarily trying to be the developers, they're partnering with private developers and creating models that benefit both sides while creating lower cost housing options in cities. I was wondering a little bit about what the details of the actual management of the housing are, because I think that is really critical Back in the 50s and 60s, there's plenty of examples of public housing projects that were fantastic when they were built and the management was horrible. And then later they were horrible places to live and torn down. So that I think is a really important piece of the puzzle that is not completely clear to me. I think if if we were able to spend more time researching it, we could probably find out. But it's just that's the big question is what is it like to actually live in here and Will that be sustained long-term through this model? 
my impression of what they've done in Montgomery County, and I've, I've seen a little bit of this in other places too, is that by by running it in, you could think of it as like a nonprofit model. So let me let me give this as an example. Strong Towns is a nonprofit, right? But we pay people's salary. Like I earn a salary working here. We have 24 people working here. They all get paid a salary. They all have a retirement plan. They all have healthcare benefits, right? Like we we do things that you would get from a normal company. The big difference between Strong Towns and say a for-profit who did similar kind of work, you know, media advocacy work, you could do this for a for-profit as well if you wanted. There's no shareholders of Strong Towns. When I retire someday from doing this, when I leave, I do not have shares that I own. I do not have equity that I will cash out. I will not uh, make money as an investor in this. My bosses are a board that is appointed, a nonprofit board. They are likewise like not compensated for doing that as a volunteer activity. If we switched over to a for-profit model, um, you would have employees, so you would have management, you would have people who did stuff and they would get paid just like that. But the profits of it, the equity of it would accrue to a board. It would be distributed to shareholders as dividends or as, as uh, capital gains. There would be some type of payout that would accompany this. If you build, say, a, a 400 unit, you know, uh, or like this one, the 268 mixed income, mixed use uh, building, and you do it in a nonprofit model. So let, let's say the government comes in and does it without the need to have a payout and a payback and all that, but with the contingency that they have to break even, like they have to actually like make money or or, or turn a profit. They're not trying to maximize profit, but turn a profit. You could do all kinds of things that another entity can't do. For example, uh, you don't have to raise rent every year. You know, or or you can raise rent below what market rates would be because again, you're not trying to maximize your return. What you're trying to do is break even, pay for your maintenance, pay for your management, pay for the person who sits at the front desk. You can have a unit that is a market oriented unit where you would raise rates at a higher rate, but you can justify that because you've got other units that maybe you don't do that to. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can do. For a government, they can also, you know, a, a, a private financer would go out and have to get a construction loan at maybe eight, nine, 10%, and then would roll that over today into a long-term commercial real estate project at maybe 7% or 8%. Like a local government can borrow all that money on the bond market at 3%. That margin of difference gives you a lot more capital to work with and a lot more need to, in a sense, cash out quickly and kind of squeeze people who are, are staying there. If you run it correctly, and that's a huge caveat, when I say competent government, you actually act to run this as if it is a nonprofit business. You can't have half your people stay in there not paying rent. You can't like not fix the roof because, oh, we're government and we can't do those things. You actually have to run it competently. If you run it competently, you can provide a lot of housing for a lot of people at a price that would be far below what a market rate would be. Yeah. And I think that's the question is how many governments can do this really competently? Montgomery County, it's a suburb of Washington, D.C. And my understanding is that it's quite competent and, you know, is probably why they're leading this charge and de developing this model and actually implementing something. I'm curious what 
what agencies around the country may have this level of competence to actually do this and to carry it out and to build things and leverage the private sector market in a way that is really smart and intentional. And it seems like that's what this model is doing is it's it's leveraging development companies, perhaps leveraging uh, management companies to actually manage I'm sure. these yeah. assets. Yeah, exactly. And th- the big benefit here is that you don't need to have profit margins that are 20% or higher like a development company would need. It can just be owned forever by, by the city. It might be worthwhile to talk a little bit about what the other alternatives are to this model, because what I think is interesting about this is that it's very, it's much more bottom up than typical alternatives to private housing are. Public housing has typically been done through federal and state programs. LIHTC is something that has become very competitive and you just don't see as much of, and it's also not going to be public housing forever when they're built. It's only public for a certain period of time. So it might be worthwhile to jump into that a little bit because clearly the federal and state models are just not not working well. Agreed. I think if you look, like Montgomery County has pioneered inclusionary zoning. So if you want to build uh, 200 market rate units, we'll let you do that if you build 20 below market rate units. Um, essentially, we will make the uh, the more affluent people subsidize the less affluent people in this internal transaction that you have. And there's a lot of people who love that model, who think that model is, is really successful or could be successful. I have never seen it, and I think this is probably the experience in Montgomery County to a degree. Um, it doesn't really scale to the size of the problem or the size of the, the demand, while it also increases the intensity of the problem. In other words, Abby, if you're going to rent my place at a market rate and I've got to charge you 10% or 15% more for that, um, so I can charge someone else 40% less than that uh, as a subsidy, what that does is it actually increases the overall price of housing, which makes more people need more assistance. It actually creates like a negative feedback loop of affordability. So now you're paying, in a sense, to subsidize the poorer person in this unit but you're having to compete at this like higher price point now uh, with everybody else in the marketplace. So how many more people does that price out by, just by doing that transaction? Washington County, or Montgomery County, excuse me, was the pioneer in this. I mean, really back in the, the you know, they were doing this two decades ago, maybe two and a half decades ago. Uh, they were convening people and people were coming there to see them, them doing this. Uh, I think that this approach that they're trying now has a lot more upside potential because instead of distorting the market upwards, it actually kind of anchors the the market at a bottom price. Like it can, it, it creates this lower competitive price point that I think will actually keep the market more in check. Some other models that are used often is, well, we're just going to give the developer a subsidy. You mentioned tax abatements. We, we will, if you come in and build this 250 unit apartment complex, um, we will abate your taxes for the next 10 years or 15 years. So we will, when you pay your taxes, we will give them right back to you at the end of the year um, to help you, you know, and if you do that in exchange, you'll keep a certain percentage of the units affordable. Well, that hurts the local government 
you're foregoing tax revenue that you actually need to provide services and run the place and like keep things working. Um, you have new residents that need services, but now you don't have the revenue that comes along with them. And basically you are buying down, you're enhancing the developer's profit um, in order to eke out a, a little bit of affordability, but you're not actually bending the top cost curve on housing in general. You're not creating competitively priced units for the market. You are subsidizing a handful of units within what is a distorted and non-competitive marketplace. I think that these approaches are not nearly as helpful as something like this, where the local government is essentially acting as a broker to create lower, like literally lower priced units. They, they are they are in a market sense, lower priced. And I think there's a lot of options for governments to do this. In the book, I write a little bit about the idea of backyard cottages and accessory units and, and these kind of things that are a little bit more difficult to finance through regular banking. Uh, local government being a mechanism whereby a lot of these things could be financed uh, through local government or with the backing and support, almost like with local government co-signing on loans. Again, you could financially do this viably, right? This is not like where you're taxing some people to give other people money in a way that's not financially viable over the long term. You can co-sign loans. You can help you know, finance down payments. You can do a whole lot of things with government purse strings at the local government level that is financially viable and responsible that would really bend the cost curve on, on housing quite a bit. So let's play devil's advocate just a little bit, um, because I, I think that there might be people that would be critical of the idea of government being a lending institution, essentially, saying that, you know, banks have all of these rules that are in place to reduce their risk and keep things solvent and sustainable. <laughs> Do you think, yeah. Right? That, that, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But How quaint. You, <laughs> yeah, do you think that do you think that that is a valid criticism and something that should be of concern? Because there obviously is a competency question um, with any any kind of lending that's going on, and the devil's always in the details. But is that something that you think is a concern that people should be thinking about with programs like this? No, I will give you my concern, but let's deal with this one first. Cause I, I chuckled there. I, I laughed because it is, <laughs> it's such a quaint idea that the banks are out, you know, have all these checks in place and are doing responsible lending. Um, you know, I think we, we saw very clearly in 2008, the irresponsibility of the banking sector. And since 2008, um, all they of those financial Chuck, they're not doing What's anything that? wrong anymore. It's all fixed, right? No, it's not. It's <laughs> it's more bizarre than it has ever been. I think that that's one of the things that. Okay, let me say this. I am a market based person. I think that when you study natural habitats, when you study ecosystems, what you are studying is a marketplace. It's a marketplace of resources. It's a marketplace of competition, of also altruism. Uh, ecosystems are really, really, at their foundation are markets. And when we create financial markets that work in this way, they work really, really well. I think bottom-up markets, um, where you have, uh, in this case, housing that is uh, responsive to local market capacity, 
and local market demand, I think it works really, really well. When you nationalize markets, when you centralize markets, when you take away the feedback loops that would actually equilibrate supply and demand at a local level, you get a bunch of kind of Wall Street-focused housing products that respond to state subsidies, federal subsidies, more than they respond to local demand. This is how you get a country where you know two out of three homes are single-person or two-person homes, and two out of three homes, or two out of three households, have one or two people living in them and two or three homes that are constructed are single family, you know, three, four bedroom homes. I mean, it's a huge mismatch, but that's where the subsidy is. So the, the suggestion that banks have all these checks and balances and these things that make them responsible lenders that local government doesn't have, I think that that is silly, right? Like that, I, I'm not suggesting you're silly. I, People who hold that view have a naive view of the world, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can I give you the red flag, though, for me? Please. Because to me, there's two red flags here. And I think the first one we can understand if we think of how cities run like sewer and water systems, uh, because it's very much the same thing. There are cities out there that run their sewer and water systems as if they were running a utility. So we're going to charge what it takes to provide the service. We're going to have sinking funds for maintenance and large-term capital improvements. We know we have to fix this pump every 20 years. And so we're going to have maintenance on it every year. And then we're going to plan for its ultimate replacement every two decades. We're going we're to put money aside for that. We're going to responsibly run this system. We have employees that we pay competitive rates. We don't, you know, abuse them and overwork them. Uh, we provide good service. We're responsive, but we 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 run this thing like a business, and that means that we have to raise rates regularly. We have to manage our funds regularly. Now, we're not trying to maximize our profit, so we're not trying to charge you twice as much for your water than than what we need. But we are charging you like the going rate. Those governments find that they can run these systems really well indefinitely, provide really good service, and, and generally do it in competitive ways because they're responsible. That is the rare, 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 rare case. What mostly happens is that we look at sewer fees and water fees as taxes, and our goal is to keep taxes as low as possible. And so we chase new growth um, to subsidize the old growth. We shortchange maintenance. We let things fall apart. We go and overextend ourselves with federal grants and state grants. And we basically run these systems like idiots. We, we, we are not competent and responsible in how we run them. And so most cities have bloated infrastructure systems without the money to maintain them with rates that have now crept up to high levels because they have to pay debt service because they've borrowed a lot of money instead of raising rates in the past. And they're horrible, poorly run systems. If we run a housing model like this with all the right intentions to begin with, and then we start to slide into, well, we can't raise rates because it's a charity. We can't do this because we have to help people. And we can't essentially competently and responsibly run this because of the greater good. I get that like human emotion. But what happens is that ultimately more people get hurt and your system gets screwed up and it doesn't work. The red flag for me in this whole thing is when you get to the end of this article, all these governments were like, well, we're really inspired by Montgomery County. How could the federal government help with this? How could the state government help with this? And the answer is that the federal government and the state government can only screw this model up. 
They can only mess it up the same way they've messed up sewer systems and water systems by coming in and saying, hey, you want to do this? Here's a whole bunch of money to do it so that you don't have to think about how to make this financially viable. You don't have to consider the long-term finances of this. We're just going to pour money on you to solve this problem today. And what that will do is it will solve the problem today and it will make the problem tomorrow way, way, way worse. Cities can do this in a financially competent and responsible way. And I want to see them act in that way. Like I want to see them be financially competent and responsible because if they do, they can do beautiful, helpful, productive, kind, just, caring, necessary things. But if they're incompetent and they don't run their city well, which they won't if the federal government gives them like ridiculous sums of money to do dumb things, then a lot of people get hurt. And that is like the story of our cities. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the example that you talked about earlier, that this is something that should be thought of as like running a nonprofit organization by which you aren't, you aren't losing tons of money every single year. You do need to have, you know, a break even essentially and manage it in a way that breaks even rather than um, just throwing money at it and losing money and requiring more every single year, because that that ultimately will also make that system super reliant on state and federal government subsidies. And if those become uh, more scarce over time, then the system will implode. So a sustainable model at the local level is really critical. Well, let, let let me make this very real to people in a way that might be uncomfortable. I said at the beginning that there's three buckets. This is the third bucket. Let's say you have the the market rate is $2,000 a month for an apartment and we can do it through this model and rent them out at $1,200 and have it be financially viable. So this is a huge cut, right? And we can do that. But we have families that move in and they don't pay their rent or they don't take care of the place or they do something else that would be antisocial that would get you kicked out of a normal market rate place. Guess what needs to happen? Those people need to be kicked out because this isn't the first bucket where we're helping people who can't help themselves. I think that there is a way to do that. And I think there's a conversation about that, but it should never be intermingled with this strategy, which is a broader strategy to help fix the housing market locally and help get a lot of people on the margins into housing. You're going to kick those people out. And I'm not saying that you don't help them, but bucket number three, this bucket is not the way you help them. And if you try to help them through this bucket, you will actually mess up the whole thing for everybody who can be helped by this. You have to help yeah. those people in a different way. That Does is that make brutal, sense? It, no, it makes a ton of sense. And it's a brutal truth dealing with the fact yeah. that we do live in a society that doesn't have just a bunch of perfect people that will just fit into these mechanisms and systems that are set up, that there really does need to be alternatives, uh, that like this isn't going to be something that is best suited for every kind of person. Um, but I think that's kind of why my question at the beginning of this is, is this a part of the solution? I think it's not going to be the the moonshot thing that fixes the housing market but i certainly think it is part of the solution but it's important i I think both functionally and politically for people to be thinking about these in in terms of these different buckets because different people require different buckets of 
of housing models. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would like to eliminate bucket number two, all the subsidies that we have for single family homes, all the subsidies we have for the big five over one apartments and the people who are out building those like over and over and over again. We've oversupplied those and those subsidies should go away. I don't think they will. And I'm not going to fight that because, you know, like whatever, but local governments should try to protect themselves from the insanity of that market by basically being leaders in financing of the kind of housing that is not being built in their communities, but needs to be built. But if they don't do that through a fiscal lens, if they don't do that in a competent fiscal way, they will wind up bankrupting their city. They'll wind up hurting more people than they help. And they'll wind up just a basket case. And so, yeah, to me, have a third bucket that says, we're going to help people in this financially responsible way and have a, a first bucket that says for the people that that doesn't work for, we're going to have a homeless shelter. We're going to have some other form of assistance. We're going to do other things. If you just can't afford the $2,000 a month apartment, but you can't afford the $1,200 a month apartment, let's get you in the $1,200 a month apartment and have you be successful in that in a way that actually we can keep providing that 1200 square foot apartment. Well, and I think if this model can be done in a way that is successful, the other beautiful thing about this is that the, you know, whether it's a transit agency or a county or a local government, they can zoom out and be thinking about how, where these projects are actually placed within communities from a planning perspective, which I think is, is something that could be done really smartly. Uh, whether you're doing it for transit-oriented development or for an adaptive reuse of an old building. There's just a lot of different applications that I think could be really meaningful if this, if this program is done in a way that's very competent. Well, you, you've done some of this work at Multi-Studio, and I know some of your colleagues have too. Um, Joe Minicozzi and the group at Urban 3 has done some really sophisticated maps. I, I've seen them for Salt Lake City and other places where they say, look, here's your assets as a government. In Salt Lake City, they actually mapped up within a mile of every train station, every train stop. Here's actually where you have tax forfeit land and big parking lots that are government owned and like all kinds of places where you could put housing where, you know, if you think like the developer's cost to build the 250 unit apartment, 10% of that, 15% of that is land cost. If you're the government and you can knock 15% off the top right away at for, for land cost because you own the land already, which lots of governments own tons of land, your, your unit's already like market more competitive, right? Now add in the financing, add in like the fact that you don't have a, a profit motive. Um, or you, you don't you have, have to pay property taxes, most likely. You don't have to pay property taxes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You, you have all of these things that allow you to, at a rate that would be market rate for you. In other words, you can provide this thing. I'm going to use the word profitably. You can break even and actually make money so you can fix the roof and maintain the sidewalk and take care of the plumbing and do all these things. You can do all that and still be 20, 25, 30% below market rate. Go do it. Yeah, totally. I think it's part of the solution. And it's definitely something that we've talked about with people here in Kansas City. And yeah, 
I'm, I'm for it. I, I think it sounds fascinating. So remember a while back when we had that one goofy article where, and I want to say it was Portland, Which but like, I might just be curious. <laughs> yeah, I know we've had quite a few, but we had one city where they're like, we've come up with the plan. We're going to go borrow a $50 million or like, I can't remember what it was. It was some obscene amount of money. And then we're going to go and be, be the developer and build all this stuff. And I'm like, no, you're as a, as a local government without the feedback loop of having to make the finances work, you are undisciplined about it. If you just give anyone a huge sum of money and say, go out and do good, they will justify like every step and not really make it financially viable. I just remember that being this thing where like the good intentions dominated the strategy. And to me, I feel like this Montgomery County thing is in a sense balancing the good intentions with a strategy and being uh, hopefully in an ideal way. And I don't know, but I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm hopeful doing it in a really responsible, prudent kind of way. You should be able to go to taxpayers and say, we're going to do this. And everybody in the community, their taxes will go down as a result of us doing this. Well, if, if they can accomplish that, then I think it would have a ton of support uh, but a competently run government could do that. Could absolutely. do that really well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, okay, well, I'm glad that I okay. got your thoughts on this one because it's, you know. <laughs> I'm glad I, you picked I, this I one. <laughs> I was a little skeptical when you sent me a Vox article on, on what if public housing were for everyone? And I'm like, oh, good grief. Yeah, I, w I wanted to trigger you and test if you're reading the article. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had an no, open this mind. Is a good one. Yeah, yeah. This was this was just testing if you if you read it or Thank not you. because yeah, yeah, I just I gotta <laughs> I gotta audit you every once in a while. So that's cool. Yeah, we're good. Well, yeah, this is good. Thanks, Chuck. Um, before we finish today, though, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been doing or, or reading or watching these days. Um, Chuck, any good books on the docket? I am um, going to Alaska for six days as part of like a tour around Alaska. Like I'm speaking in Anchorage and Homer and Fairbanks and Juneau and like other places. Um, and when I do a big trip like this, I usually bring, like I usually try to start a new book. Like this is the book for the trip. And I decided that I was going to read that disillusioned book, the one we did the episode on like three episodes ago. So I've, I've got it, I've started it, and now I plan to, you know, in airports and airplanes and, and – because I take a flight every single day on this trip, at least one, sometimes two. I'm like, you need a lot of reading material if you're spending lots of times in airports. So I'm getting going on that. I don't have anything to report yet, but we'll see. I'll let you know next, next time we chat. Okay, that sounds good. So in a couple of weeks, we'll touch base. Yeah, so I want to hear about that book. I really need to pick up a copy for myself because it seems like it's a worthwhile re read. Is it good so far, at least? Um, yes, I'm. You know, it is a different lens than I look at this stuff through, and I'm I'm keeping like an open mind and an open heart about what the story is, because in a different realm, I feel like it would be. I mean, a lot like what we talked about today. Like, is this just a bleeding heart story? 
with no grounding. And I, I don't know yet, but that's my, that's like my fear and I'm kind of keeping an open mind about it. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to hearing more in a couple of weeks. I guess what I have to share. So last time we talked, I think I mentioned that I was going to New Mexico and it was really cool. A lot of, there's a lot of different things I could talk about, but one of the things that really stood out to me was all of the pottery in that part of the world. Uh, there was just so many different galleries and you know studios that you could go to to see people working on pottery and their galleries. There was this one in particular that was located, it was outside of the city on Highway 64 um, that it was called Enchanted Circle Pottery. And it is this beautiful property that is owned by a husband and wife. And you can just walk in and they're there and they will show you around their property. It, they have a gallery space. They have the space where they throw their pots and work. Um, they have this giant kiln and it's like the biggest kiln that I've ever seen in my life that is, it's essentially like a, it's a wood, it's a wood fired pot, pottery process. So they have this Japanese process that they use to fire um, all the ceramics and they get it to such a high temperature that all of the ash melts into this glazing that is like orange and red and brown and it's really beautiful and creates all these different patterns just because of the way the the way it's all moving inside this kiln and and how the airflow works so yeah I actually got um got a piece from them and I have it being mailed back to me. So I'm hoping to get it in a couple of days. I have a big box of New Mexico stuff that I accumulated on this trip that hopefully is in the mail and on its way. But I'm, I'm particularly excited about this piece of pottery. Very cool. Let me ask, I don't, you might not know this, but is this a kind of agglomeration of pottery? Is this cultural? Is this because the materials are there? Is this because a bunch of people who love pottery just said, this is like the place for pottery and we're all going to move here? Do you know, do you know why? That's a really good question. I I think that pottery is part of the longer term history because of the Native Americans. Yeah. But, um, but I, I don't know exactly why there's so many artists in this part of the country and why there's so much pottery. I'm, I'm sure there's like a, a crossover between historically who has been there and people who have migrated to this region. It's really beautiful. And I, I could see why the area between Santa Fe and Taos would attract a lot of like maybe back to the land hippie types that, that would want to live there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, I was really just struck by the variety of different types of pottery that was, that's there. And I wish I knew more about the history. I, I'm sure I, I'm sure there's information out there or somebody listening to this probably has the full story about it. But Well, maybe yeah. they will uh, tweet us because that's been the, the way we've been getting a lot of feedback lately is on Twitter. <laughs> I know. On Twitter, <laughs> you and I. Uh, people will send us, uh, hey, did you see this? Sometimes it's alien stuff. Sometimes it's uh, actual, like, you know, upzone related stuff. So, yeah, my favorite is when people make memes and send it to me. Uh, I'm a big fan. I communicate well, mostly through memes. So, I do too, even with my wife. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't. 
<laughs> it's its own love language. <laughs> yeah, it's our love language. Yeah. I'm on enchant. Well, when you when you've been married 28 years, sometimes that is true. Actually, um, That's awesome. I'm on EnchantedCirclePottery.com. And yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, this is some beautiful stuff. I, I see the um, the kind of inlays of it's not just pottery, but it's it's not just the making of the thing. It's actually got it imprinted uh, things on it that you would put through the kiln. It's pretty, it's, that's really cool. Yeah. They imprint some patterns on some of the pieces. It's gorgeous. Um, the Joanne, who is, is the wife um, in this partnership was showing us some of the different pieces and how those inlays work. And yeah, it's, it's incredible. And it's really impressive. Some of the pieces that they have are like, taller than I am. They have tons of functional things that you can get little, you know, pots and cups and, you know, all, they have all kinds of stuff. There's so many, there's thousands of pieces probably in, in that studio. Um, but yeah, there's some huge pieces because it's a giant, it's a giant, giant kiln. I've never seen something quite like it. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah, their website has all kinds of information about how it works. And, um, yeah, you could probably go into a rabbit hole on wood kiln firing just through this website. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. So yeah, looking forward to going back to New Mexico. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chuck. Well, thank you. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Enjoy your, your trip and I'll look forward to hearing more about the book. All right. Thanks, Abby. Take care. Thanks. Get down the